All right, let's dive in. We are going through the Gospel of Matthew verse by verse, and we are at chapter 12, verses 15 through 21, and uh, we're going to learn how Jesus is the perfect servant today. So we're talking about servanthood. Um, if you need a Bible, we got them in the back. My notes are always, uh, they're also in the foyer. If you need those, please take both of those home with you. We want to make sure that you've got God's Word in your hand. Well, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 12, and as you turn there, let me review, because last Sunday, well, last Sunday was Christmas, two Sundays ago, we learned how Jesus is the Lord of mercy, and we watched him heal someone who had a paralyzed hand. We watched how the scribes and the Pharisees, they tried to trick Jesus, they tried to trap him. I think it's fascinating to see how the mercy of one person can invoke such rage in, in others. Why do you think that is? Why is that? Well, we learned that specifically the, the primary reason that the, the Pharisees flew into a rage after this miraculous healing, you would think that they would be ecstatic, right? We talked about how the Pharisees, they should have just hit the ground and worshiped the Lord Jesus Christ, but they didn't. They, planned, they made plans to kill him. The primary reasons that they flew into a rage is because Jesus is holy. Jesus is both God and also man. He has two simultaneous yet distinct and complete natures, right? He is, Jesus is both God and he is man. And they come together and theologically we call this the hypostatic union. He is God and man. So Jesus, as God, right, he can't be controlled. And if the world can't control Jesus, if people can't control him, then they just, well, he's got to go. We got to kill him. He's too good for us. He's too holy for us. Jesus, you got you to leave. We got to get rid of this guy. Jesus is everything that we're not. See, Jesus is different. That's, that's what holy means. He is, he's set apart. Jesus is different. He's not like you and me. Many, many times, right, we, we lower God down and we kind of raise ourselves up as if we're on the same playing field. That's not how this works. I saw somebody wearing a t-shirt one day that said, Jesus is my homie. I thought to myself, Jesus is not your homie, bro. All right? He's not your, look, Jesus is, he's not just holy. We just sang about it. Jesus is not just holy. He's thrice holy. Jesus is holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6, right? Where the seraphim, the angels, they're always singing that. He's holy. And it's this differentiation of Jesus' holiness and our sinfulness. That's where the gospel, that's where Matthew takes us today. Today, Matt takes a break from really all the drama, all from the scribes and the Pharisees, and, and really reveals here how different Jesus is. And he takes, us, uh, he takes us back to looking at the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. So Matthew digs deep here because he wants us to know how Jesus, di how different he is from Israel's spiritual leaders. And it's, it's fascinating, and we'll see this, how the prophet Isaiah foretells with perfect accuracy the demeanor in which the Lord Jesus treats his people. Uh, what are those characteristics? How do they, uh, 
apply to your life today? And what's it mean for the new year? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand now for the reading and the honoring of God's word. Just as we sang those songs as one voice and one church, let's read uh, the scriptures as one voice and one church. The passage will be on the screen for us. Starting in verse 15, Jesus was aware of this and withdrew. Large crowds followed him and he healed them all. He warned them not to make him known so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations he will not argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. Father in heaven, the psalmist writes, make your face shine on your servant Father, we're going to be talking about servanthood today. Show us what it looks like to be a servant. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. 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 Have a seat, guys. Thank you. All right, let's take a look here. I'm actually going to start in verse 9, since it's been two weeks since we, uh, we looked at this passage. So, to get the full context, verse 9. So moving on from there, Jesus entered their synagogue, and there he saw a man who had a shriveled hand. And in order to accuse him, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus replied, who among you, if you had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A person is worth far more than a sheep. So yeah, it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. And then he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was restored as good as the other. The Pharisees then went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. Pick up the narrative here in verse 15. Jesus was aware of this, and he withdrew. So Jesus was aware that these religious men, the irony, we talked about this, right? The irony of these men wanting to kill Jesus as the perfect God-man. Jesus knows when to confront people. He knows when to stand up and fight. He, know, he also knows when to back down. Uh, the book of Proverbs has so much practical wisdom for us. Uh, let me show you three verses out of Proverbs here. The wise are cautious. They avoid danger. Fools, on the other hand, they plunge ahead with reckless confidence. Short-tempered people do foolish things. Proverbs 18.6, a fool's lips lead to strife and his mouth provokes a beating. So this was a time for Jesus to back down. And the reason that Jesus, he backed down was not only because Jesus is wise here, but because also this is, this is all within the Father's timing. Evidently, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're so mad that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath day that they were ready to kill him on the spot. 
So Jesus withdraws from this confrontation because it might have led to an early death. And, and please know that no one takes the Lord's life. He gives it freely. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us here how Jesus knew that the Pharisees wanted to kill him. We do have a couple options to think about. First, Jesus saw the rage in the, in the Pharisees and the scribes. He saw them visibly angry. Secondly, the Father may have revealed this uh, to Jesus. And then thirdly, Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. He may have known it as well. But regardless, the, the point here is that Jesus decided to withdraw from that confrontation and leave. Now look, Jesus was not afraid to die, but it had to be at the right time. In the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4, 4, Jesus came into the world. And at the right time, he's going to leave it. John chapter 7. So please know Jesus was never forced to do anything. He withdrew here on his own volition. So back to verse 15. Large crowds followed Jesus. <laughs> so even though Jesus leaves, he doesn't leave alone. We're talking about thousands and thousands of people. How do we know that? Well, Mark's gospel fills in the details a little bit. Let's take a look. Mark chapter 3, verse 7. So Jesus departed with his, his disciples to the sea. So we got a, a little bit more detail there. And a large crowd followed him from Galilee, and a large crowd followed him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edumea, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. Man, oh man, this large crowd came to him. Why? Because they heard about everything that he was doing. And then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. Guys, thousands upon thousands of people are following Jesus. And then in verse 10, since Jesus had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing towards him to touch him. It's a lot of people. Notice how despite the Pharisees, really the, the consistency, the, 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 the constant hatred of their schemes to embarrass and discredit Jesus, Jesus' popularity at this point, it continues to rise. Jesus is no longer this no-name rabbi from, from Nazareth. He is rock star Jesus. Everybody wants a piece of Jesus. So he's climbing to the height of his popularity and it's not only with his own people. It's not just with the Jews. It's, it's with the non-Jews. Edumea is a, the, the southern part of Israel. We got Tyre and Sidon are in the northern part. So it, it's kind of like people walking from Flagstaff and Phoenix to get to Cottonwood. They're, they're traveling from all over, right? So this is just a great example of God's sovereignty and his truth. And the people who are now following Jesus, this is just proof that love wins. Love wins. See, this Pharisaic religiosity of, of Jesus' day, it's dying. Jesus brings a relationship. This is not about keeping the rules. We see a great example of this cold, hard, dead religion in the book of Acts. There's this fire-breathing Pharisee. He's filled with rage. Let me show you. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. His name is Saul. 
Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the, the disciples of the Lord. What is it with these Pharisees, man? These are the most angry people on the face of the planet. What a shocker. This guy's just as mad as the, uh, the other Pharisees and scribes that Jesus is trying to minister. Verse 2, so he saw, he went to the high priest, he requested letters from him to the synagogue in Damascus, so that if Saul found any men or women who belonged to the way, so that's people who are now following Jesus, that he might bring them, look at this, as prisoners to Jerusalem. So Saul traveled, he was nearing Damascus, a light suddenly appeared, flashed around him, and then later in the book of Acts, he says this, he says, we all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice speaking to me in Aramaic, and the voice said this, hey Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is Jesus. Guys, this is the resurrected Jesus speaking to this man. And then he says this, Jesus says, you know, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. You know what a goad is? It's a cattle prod. It's a long stick with a, a pointed end to drive the cattle. So if, if the ox didn't like how the owner drove him, the, the ox would then rear up his back feet and kick and let the owner know, hey, quit poking me with that thing. What's Jesus's point? Well, the owner of that ox would then discipline that ox severely with that goad. So this verse could literally be translated, uh, it is useless for you, Saul, to fight against my will. Quit trying to put my people in prison. This is not going to work out well for you. So these Pharisees, and then we've got Saul at that moment. Here's the thing. I bet you that they would have bet their life that they were in the middle of God's will at that moment. Doing what they're doing, persecuting people. But they couldn't have been more wrong. Have you ever been there? Doing something that you believe was, was right with all of your heart. Maybe even claiming, like, I know this is what God wants me to do. This is God's will for my life. And yet, you don't realize out of your zeal that, that you're running over people. You're ruining relationships. And maybe, maybe it, it takes months or even years to, to find that out. It's tragic when people use their God-given gifts to especially destroy the church instead of building it up. Back to our gospel text here in verse 15. Jesus heals everybody. He heals them all. So Jesus healed the entire crowd. Doesn't matter what ailment, doesn't matter what disease. Jesus healed everybody instantaneously. Now, why did Jesus do that? He did it to prove that his message is true. He did it to prove the gospel's true. The crowd, they're, they're eyewitnesses, right, to this. So they either have to accept Jesus as Lord or Savior, or they have to reject him. I mean, after seeing one man come into Israel and heal the entire nation, you can't straddle the fence. You've got to make a decision. Verse 16, 
Jesus warned them not to make him known. So after Jesus heals people in this crowd, he specifically tells them not to tell anybody. Yeah, right. Uh, we, we see Jesus do this time and time again. You know, why, why would Jesus tell people that? I think a better question is how? How could people not say anything? How could people keep quiet? I mean, aren't friends going to recognize? Hey, you used to be blind. How can you see? Hey, you used to be deaf. What's going on? People are going to ask, right? I mean, Jesus isn't healing headaches and back pain like these jokers running around today. You know, this is visible stuff. So how is it possible that anybody can keep quiet? It's not, it's not possible. So the reason, though, that Jesus wants everybody to keep quiet is because people are always coming to Jesus for the wrong reasons. Physical healing and free food are two of the most popular, you bet. There are other reasons that Jesus said, hey, I need you to zip it. But, but those are the two main ones. And, and here's the other. Jesus constantly fought against people's perceptions and their opinions of what he should be doing and what he should not be doing. I mean, think about it. After Jesus fed the 5,000, what did some of those people try to do? They tried to force him to be king, right? It's never a good idea to try to force Jesus to do anything. I mean, who doesn't want free food and social security? This guy has to be king. We, we got to crown him. But here's the thing, guys. You fast forward now 2,000 years later, and what's changed? We got sick people. We got disabled people. They put their hope. They're, they're spending all this money to see these fake evangelists who promise this health and wealth and, and prosperity gospel. See, if our greatest need were actually health, God would have sent a doctor, right? Our greatest need is not finances either. If it were, God the Father would have sent a financial advisor. Like we need more of those running around. Our greatest need is always forgiveness. And that's why God the Father sent a Savior. Today, many people go from church to church to church, and they're asking the wrong questions. Whenever you ask the wrong questions, you'll always get the wrong answer, right? Many people go, okay, what's wrong with my marriage? That's the wrong question. Better biblical question is, why am I such a lousy husband and father? I'll never forget the first time a brother of mine asked me that question. Why are you such a lousy father or husband? Do you have somebody in your life that does that, gentlemen? Looks you eyeball to eyeball, tells you like it is. Why am I always worried? Why am I, why am I so fearful of the future? That's a bad question. Wrong question. Get the wrong answer. Biblical question is, why do I still love the world and all that it offers? All these sparkly things that I just got to have, and I haven't learned the discipline yet of, of not taking out my credit card to pay for these things. 
Why is my health so bad? What did I do wrong? Lots going into that question. I think a better question is, why do I disrespect the temple of the Holy Spirit? I mean, these are all heart-related issues, aren't they? All these physical things, they, they hinder our relationship with Jesus because our eyes, look, we're, they're, they're down on me. I, I can't, I, I got to get my eyes up and, and see what God is doing around me. Otherwise, we think we're worshiping the one true living God, and we're not. We're worshiping the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I, instead of Father, Son, and Spirit. So Jesus told these people not to make him known for those kind of reasons. Look, guys, Jesus came to deliver us. He came to free us from the shackles of sin. Jesus was on a mission to save us from our sins. And what do we do? We're always telling Jesus what to do, aren't we? We're, we're trying to get Jesus to fulfill our mission. And we're trying to get him off of his. I, I think, as I think about this, the, the proof many times is in our prayers. Are we always telling God what to do? Or are we waking up, asking God to forgive us for our sins, and praying that his will be done in my life. Back to verse 16. So Jesus warned them to, to, to not make him known, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So Matthew, our gospel writer here, he turns to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Now Matt has done this a few times so far. This is the largest passage um, that he has included an Old Testament prophet was someone who spoke for God. And one particular job of a prophet was to prophesy. To prophesy, to foretell, to forecast the future. Now, a prophet doesn't predict the future. That's different. He doesn't predict the future. He prophesies. He's the one that relates divine communication from God through the prophet to his people. So a couple of examples of this, God used the prophets to guide his people by telling them how to act in, in certain specific situations. Uh, the prophets also warned people when they disobeyed the Lord. They also foretold events that, that he would bring about, and then he also interpreted those events when they did come. So this got me thinking, like, how many prophecies are there about Jesus? How many prophecies? Well, there are between four and 500 messianic prophecies, meaning specific prophecies about Jesus uh, in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there are another 300. Now, look, anybody can make predictions, right? But having those, those prophecies fulfilled, that's entirely different. So take, for example, the, the many modern-day YouTubers, these YouTube prophets, uh, think about the last presidential election, how they predicted that someone would win. Guess what? Oops, they were wrong. In the Old Testament, we, we, we never see a true prophet saying, oops. Oops is not in his vocabulary. 
So we see nearly 800 prophecies made about Jesus, some with great detail. Uh, And think about this, guys. The more prophecies made and the more detail that is in those prophecies, the less likely they are to to be fulfilled. So let me give you two examples here. There's a Westmont college professor who calculated the probability of how this one man, Jesus the Christ, how he could fulfill these prophecies. So in other words, he wanted to find out what the odds were of Jesus fulfilling all of these things. The math itself was was worked out by 12 different classes, 600 different university students. The professor then took this math, um, all the probabilities, and, and he submitted the work to the ASA, the American Scientific Affiliation. And upon their review, they verified that these, these um, numbers were correct. So here's what they found. After examining only eight different prophecies, only eight out of 800, they estimated the chance of one man fulfilling all eight prophecies was one in 10 to the 17th power. That's a figure with 17 zeros behind it. Wouldn't you love to open up your bank app and see that in your checking account? A figure with 17 zeros behind it? So the professor gave uh, this illustration. He, he put t- 10 tickets in a hat. He put a, a specific mark on one of the tickets. He shuffled them. He asked one of the students to come up. He blindfolded the student, drew one of the tickets out of the hat. The odds are 1 out of 10. Okay, we all get that. Suppose someone took silver dollars, though, and laid them all over the state of Texas two feet deep. So you got the picture, right? Texas, big state, two feet deep, all silver silver dollars. Uh, He's going to mark one of those silver dollars, say he just paints it red, and then he throws it somewhere in the state of Texas. Now, blindfold someone and allow him to travel as far as he wants and to take as much time as he wants. Doesn't matter, from El Paso to Longview, from Amarillo down to Corpus Christi. And his job is to find that marked silver dollar on the first try. What chance would he have of picking the right one the first time? One in 10 to the 17th power. I mean, that's an, uh, it's just an example of an impossible odd that the prophets could actually get this stuff right out of eight prophecies, not 800. So all that to say this, Matthew paraphrases this prophecy that we're getting ready to look at. Um, and, and what he's doing here, he's proving that Jesus is the king of all kings. He's the Messiah. He's God incarnate. He's our Savior. He is God in flesh and bones. Secondly, Matt is also setting the expectations of what kind of king Jesus is. Is this guy going to be like everybody else? Now, before we read Matt's paraphrase here, let's look at Isaiah. Isaiah 42.1. This is the Lord speaking through the prophet. He says, this is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. 
I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out. He's not going to shout. He's not going to make his voice heard in the streets. No, 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 no. See, he's, he's not going to break a bruised reed. He's not going to put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully, he will faithfully bring justice. He's not going to grow weak or be discouraged until he has established justice on the earth. The coast and the islands will wait for his instruction. So the key word here in Isaiah's passage is, is justice. It appears three times. So Isaiah, really, he's referring more than just legal correctness here. That, that exact word justice, it's used in Exodus chapter 26, talking about building the tabernacle. Building the tabernacle, God gave the Israelites a plan to build that thing. They didn't like huddle up and go, hey, guys, what do you think? No, 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 no. See, God said, no, this is how you're going to build it. This is how big it's going to be. This is the kind of materials you're going to use. So in other words, God has a plan and justice is God's blueprint that is revealed from heaven. So it's not just a sense of right or wrong here, but it's a society. Matthew has showed us it's a kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. As God determines how things should run, there's no corruption and there's no sin in this kingdom. So it's through this lens that God's blueprint that, that Matthew paraphrases here. So let's take a look, verse 18. He says, here is my servant whom I have chosen. So Jesus is the mediator between us and God the Father. I mean, think about it. We can't just barge into the mayor's office without an appointment here in town, right? How much more do we think we can barge into the Holy of Holies and talk to God the Father? It doesn't work that way. You have to be invited. Someone has to introduce you to the Father, and that's who Jesus is. He's the mediator. That word servant there, that's not the usual word for servant. It's often translated as son. So what God the Father is telling us here, he's like, look, guys, there's my son. Here he is, right? So when you, when you look at my son, you're seeing the face of God. When you hear the voice of my son, you're hearing the voice of God. Look at him. Here he is. Verse 18 continues. He says, here is my servant whom I have chosen. This is a firm. It's a predetermined decision that is used nowhere else in the New Testament. So in other words, God the Father, he has predestined, he has prearranged Jesus as God the Son to be the divine servant. Now, how did this happen? You ever wonder? Like, when did that take place? Go home and read Genesis 3.15. Read Genesis 3.15. It will blow your mind. I won't spoil it for you. So back to verse 18, he goes on to say, this is my beloved this is, in, this is whom I delight, beloved God. God the Father dearly loves his, his, uh, his son. He cherishes him more than anyone else. Just as you love and, and, and like people and, and you love children, you love your 
your, your own children. You love your grandchildren more than others. Same thing here with the father loving God the son. He takes delight in him. He takes great pleasure in Jesus. Verse 18 says, I'm going to put my spirit on him. What's that mean? Well, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Matthew chapter 1. You look at John the Baptist, he was, he was filled with the Spirit, uh, Luke chapter 1 as well. But how much more was Jesus? We also saw a physical representation of the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism. The Holy Spirit descended uh, upon Jesus as a dove, Matthew chapter 3. So it means here that, that Jesus was divine from the very beginning. See, Jesus was not just this good man who, who kind of worked his way up the spiritual corporate ladder and became God. That's not how it happened, right? Jesus did not get like this spiritual promotion. Jesus has always been God. Jesus is both God and now he is man. And it was that way before he created the cosmos, guys. So God the Father, he empowers God the Son, who is now in a human body. We call that Christmas. And now he has this special outpouring of the Holy Spirit as a man. Back to verse 18. He will proclaim justice to the nations. Your translation may say justice to the Gentiles. Now that may not sound like a big deal to us today, but... First century Jews, they didn't like that. They, they, they thought that Jesus ministering to the Gentiles was a repulsive thing. I mean, after all, God chose Israel, right? They were the chosen race. Well, regardless, Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would indeed proclaim the message of truth and justice to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what he did. And aren't you glad? Because if he didn't, guess what? We wouldn't be here today. Most of us are Gentiles. Think about it. The first person that Jesus revealed his identity to was a Samaritan woman. She was half Jew and half Gentile in John chapter 4. We also see this proclamation again uh, today as Matthew and Mark, they tell us where all these crowds come from. Right? These Tyre and Sidon, th these are Gentile heathen nations. Man, that, that, that's like inviting someone from Cornville to come over here to church. I'll just stick, stick to my script, I guess. <laughs> That was a lot funnier in my head. <laughs> I don't even know where I am anymore. The purpose, the purpose of the Holy Spirit's power is to proclaim justice, right? So administering justice was a primary responsibility of any king. Um, but we all know as we look through Scripture, right, few kings did it right. They didn't administer justice correctly. We also know, just looking at our history, world history, too many kings and presidents and politicians, they use their power to beat people down instead of caring for their people, protecting them. That's what they're supposed to do. But they didn't. Verse 19, 
He will not argue. Jesus is not going to shout. No one's going to hear his voice in the streets. So Isaiah shows us here, and Matthew reiterates this. He, he says, he's showing us what kind of king Jesus is. Jesus is not like us, and he certainly is not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus is not going to raise his voice. He's not going to shout at people. He's not going to attract attention to himself, right? Jesus is not some religious zealot who acts with all this brashness and arrogance like the Pharisees. And once again, all these people that we see on TV today. Instead, Jesus ministers in gentleness. He is meek. He is mild. He is humble. Jesus doesn't get people all worked up into this frenzy and starts to use our emotions against us and then passes the plate. He doesn't do that either, right? Jesus is not a spiritual bully. He doesn't lay guilt and shame on people. And here's the thing with this, because he doesn't do this, only a select people actually are able to hear his voice and respond to the gospel message. Because Jesus will never make you do anything that you don't want to do. And we see the gentleness of Jesus here. Look at this. Verse 20. He will not break a bruised reed. A reed is a, a, a tall plant. It's got a hollow stem. Uh, it grows in marshes. It's often used as a, a measuring rod or a staff. And, and what people would do is they would make mu musical instruments from them. Flutes. Many other things. They uh, would also use them as pens. But when the reed became soft, or maybe when it started to crack, maybe it started to bend, or it had some kind of bruise on it, it was useless. People would just throw them away. So a reed here is a symbol of weakness. A bruised reed is a picture of something that is utterly useless, something that looks beyond repair. And in all reality, every person is a spiritually bruised reed. Why is that? Because we can't save ourselves. We can't fix the things of this world, let alone the, address the things that the spiritual world, we can't even see those things. Verse 20, he will not put out a smoldering wick. So when a lamp burned down all the way to the very, very end of the wick, it would start to smoke, and it wouldn't let off any light. And if, lamp, if a lamp doesn't produce any light, what's the good of the lamp, right? So people put out the wick, they threw it away, just like the broken reed. So in other words, the bruised reed and the smoldering wick, they, they represent people who, whose lives are, are broken. They're wore out. So in other words, the world doesn't care about these people. But guys, Jesus does. And as the perfect servant, Jesus serves people who look like they're about to be snapped, or snuffed out. These good for nothing, we would say these marginalized people. Back to verse 20, until he has led justice to victory. That's good news, my friends. Jesus will right every wrong. One day, very soon, Jesus will be ruling. He'll be reigning on earth to do just that. 
Verse 21, the nations will put their hope in his name. Circle that in your Bible, his name. There is no other name like Jesus. There's no other name. Jesus means God saves. Christ is not his last name, it's his title. And it means the anointed, the chosen one. So when you put Jesus and the Christ together, you get God saves through his chosen one, through his anointed one. Christ is not his only title. There's 150 more titles found throughout scripture. And we know this, right? We know that there's no other name like Jesus. We know that Jesus has brought us from death to life. We've seen the proof in our own lives. We're not the same people, are we? Are we? That was a great spot for an amen, and y'all missed it. Y'all missed it, man. We're not the same people that we used to be. I thought I was preaching to the Lions Club or something. The world also knows the power of Jesus' name. We, we know this because it's the only name they take in vain. Why, why is it that the world takes the Lord Jesus Christ, his name, in vain? Why is that? You, you smash your finger in the door. What do they say? They, they stub their toe. What do they say? Their football team loses, what do they say? Right? Well, why don't they say, Gandhi? You stub your toe, Buddha! Your sports team loses, why don't they say, Joseph Smith? Think about it. Why? In all seriousness, why? This is so powerful for us today. Those names don't have any power because they're still in the grave. There's only one name that has power because the Lord Jesus Christ walked out of his grave just like he said he would. That's why Jesus has the power. The world hates him for it. So instead of believing in his gospel message that Jesus came to save sinners, the world gnashes its teeth at him, and they take his name in vain. I remember when I was a boy, I was probably, I don't know, 12 or 13 years old. My, my father always, always took the Lord's name in vain. And I was probably 12 or 13, and I remember exactly where I did this. I remember standing on the back porch something happened I don't remember what it was but I took the Lord's name in vain now I didn't come to know the Lord until I was 33 years old but I took that name in vain and guys something shot through me from my head down to my feet it was you are not going to do that and once again, it took another 20 years for me to even understand who Jesus was. His name is Holy. So Jesus is the perfect servant. 
Our passage taught us that today. What's it mean for us? Well, if we're, the, if we're born again disciples of Jesus, it means that we need to serve. And not like the woman on the video, right? <laughs> Jesus, the Christ, he is the perfect servant. He's perfect. If we're born again disciples of Jesus... It means we are to serve, you know, so, so plain and simple. Let me ask you this, kind of moving into the new year here. Why, why are so many people unhappy? Why are so many people angry today? Million different reasons, right? No doubt. Million different reasons. But a primary reason is that they refuse to serve. They insist on people serving them. Something drastically changes in our lives when we, once again, when we get our eyes off ourselves, and we look up just a little bit and we get to see what the Lord's doing. The more isolated we become, the more crazy we become. That's why solitary confinement in a maximum security prison, that is the worst form of punishment. You're just alone, all by yourself. And yet, we, we live in an age to where we, we willingly walk into these self-imposed prison cells and we shut everyone else off. And we wonder why we're depressed and angry all the time. And if we do see people, well, it's got to be on my schedule. There's a control aspect to this. Anxiety, fear, drug use, pornography, alcoholism, domestic violence, all these things are up at staggering levels since COVID. What's the solution? Jesus. Solution, the solution is Jesus, right? And there's a very practical solution too. And it's called community. It's called face-to-face -face relationships, right? It's called... Guess what? The church. It's called the church. Dying to yourself, picking up your cross, following Jesus to serve others. You guys know that your personal gift of servanthood, the very specific talents that God has given to you, are reasons that we don't support here at River Bible Church. We don't have certain ministries that we support. So in other words, when you come to church, right, you come for the sole purpose of worshiping the Lord. That's why we're here. You come so that you can be fed the word of God. So we learn, we experience God verse by verse. Why do we do that? So that we can go share Jesus day by day. Throughout the week, maybe you go to a Bible study, that's great. You get some more word, you get some more fellowship. But throughout the week, when we're in the world, we got to use this feeding. We got to give it away. We got to give it away to the Verde Valley. It's what, it's what we do. It's called the Great Commission. I love that. I love the true purpose of the church because it's not just one or two or three ministries that the church has. There's a hundred people in here today. There's a hundred separate ministries in here. 
Think about the power of that, to go back out into the Verde Valley and to share Jesus in your own groups, in your own professions. Man, that is so cool. Lastly, our, our servanthood doesn't get us into heaven, guys. Doing good things for God does not, you, you're not going to climb the, the stairway to heaven. It's called works-based salvation. The only way, did you know that good people don't go to heaven? Good people don't go to heaven. Did, did you know that Baptists don't go to heaven? Did you know that? Did, did you know that Methodists don't go to heaven? Only disciples of Jesus go to heaven. That's it. And it's only by his blood, through a blood-stained cross. And after three days, they, well, he was in, in the ground for three days, right? And then he had the audacity to actually walk out of his grave and prove that he is God. See, we serve because we're so grateful that the Lord Jesus came to first serve us and he saved us. And we are the most grateful people on the planet because of that. How can we not serve? How can we not share Jesus day by day after everything that he's done for us? So what are your plans for, uh, for the new year on servanthood? I would encourage you to ask the Lord. See where he wants you. Ask the Lord. Spend some time in prayer. Read the scriptures. The scriptures will tell you. Ask some trusted people. And here's the thing about serving. It's usually not what you think it's going to be. The Lord may give you this crazy idea out of left field, and you're like, where did that come from? I would encourage you to, to follow that idea, that suggestion. Walk with Jesus slowly. Start small, walk slow, cling to him. And then if, when the Lord speaks, if you want to talk about it, man, I'm all ears. Father in heaven, you are so good to us. Thank you for teaching us what it looks like to serve and what it looks like not to serve, how to do it wrong. Father, forgive us for making our serving about us. And may we, in the new year, Lord God, point people to you and to only you. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. amen.